Well, today we're uh, doing part three of a, a message that I began a couple of Sundays ago titled The Glorious Gospel of Christ. And yea, verily, we will get through verse eight this morning, all right? Even if we have to go all the way to 11 a.m. Just kidding, we're not going to go all the way to 11 a.m. But we will try to get through verse eight today uh, in this opening section. And we have been looking at three wonderful truths in Paul's Thanksgiving here in the opening section that motivate us to rejoice and stand firm in the glorious gospel of Christ. And I don't know about you, but as we have been going through this study, I have been reminded of how distracted of a people we can be. And how easily, like the Colossians, our attention can drift away from the gospel and from Christ to peripheral matters that really, at the end of the day, have no bearing upon our sanctification and our our growth. Uh, recently, I've been reading a great book, I just finished it this week, uh, titled Delighting in Christ, which I would highly recommend to you by a man by the name of Michael Reeves, a brother in Christ. And he writes about our tendency to lose our focus on the gospel of Christ. He writes this, quote, We naturally gravitate, it seems, toward anything but Jesus. And Christians, almost as much as anyone, whether it's the Christian worldview or grace or the Bible or even the gospel, as if they were things in themselves that could save us. Even the cross can get abstracted from Jesus as if the wood had some power of its own. Other things, wonderful things, vital concepts, beautiful discoveries so easily edge Jesus aside. Precious theological concepts meant to describe him and his work get treated as things in their own right. Jesus becomes just another brick in the wall. But the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system, or a thing. It is not even the gospel itself as such. It is Jesus Christ, end quote. What he's saying is that we tend to miss Christ. And like the Colossians, we can succumb to other substitutes and lesser things that don't accomplish growth and maturity in the Christian life. The great uh, Protestant reformer, John Calvin, of course, had many concerns during the time of his life and the various controversies that were taking place during the Protestant Reformation. But at the top of the list was his concern that people not lose sight of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. He wrote this, quote, For how comes it that we are carried about with so many strange doctrines, but because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us? For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. Hence, there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists with the view of obscuring Christ. Because he knows that this means the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. This, therefore, is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine. To place Christ before the view, such as he is with all of his blessings, that his excellence may be truly perceived." End quote. Calvin's point is that false teaching and counterfeit ways of growing in Christ creep in when we lose sight of Christ as he is revealed in his word. It is easy to succumb to peripheral matters in the Christian life when we take our eyes off of Christ as revealed in his holy word. And it is this concern of becoming distracted away from Christ by other lesser things that motivated Paul to write to the Colossians. To point the Colossians back to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. 
And in doing so, beloved, exposing the falsehood of those who were promoting false teaching and thinking as a means of drawing closer to God apart from Christ, other than through Christ. And it's my desire that we would, as we walk through the book of Colossians, and even this morning, that we would be reminded in this opening section to continue, beloved, to ask God to help us to bask in the beauty of Christ, to bask in His, in His beauty, that we would be motivated to rejoice in Christ and stand firm in the gospel. We know the signs of the times, do we not? We're living in a, in a difficult time. There is growing hostility here in our country to the gospel and to anything that has to do with God. We are seeing in our country unprecedented tolerance towards sinful behavior and sinful decisions that are anti-God and anti-Scripture. And not only are we being asked now to tolerate those decisions and to tolerate sinful behavior and sinful decisions that are anti-God, but we're being asked now also to embrace them and even to promote them as well. Otherwise, you suffer the consequences for it. Well, beloved, in the midst of growing hostility and growing tolerance towards anti-God kinds of things, the last thing that we need to be doing is cowering away and sticking our heads in the sand. No. We have a risen and exalted Christ, do we not? And so the, the answer is to draw closer to Christ as Christians and to be proclaiming Christ and to be exalting Christ by naming the name of Christ all over the place in whatever context God has us in. Not to shut down and cower away because of a growing hostile environment. We need to be preaching Christ as the only hope to be delivered from this wicked generation. So to help us along, we've been looking at these three wonderful truths in Paul's thanksgiving. Three wonderful truths to motivate us to rejoice in what we have, beloved. To rejoice in and stand firm in this glorious gospel and proclaim it and pass it on to others. Now by way of review, we have seen, first of all, the glorious person of the gospel. We have seen that Paul gives thanks to God the Father who sent the Son into the world to reconcile sinners such as us to himself. And how beautiful it is so that that we can enter now into a personal relationship with God by faith in Christ. The glorious person of the gospel. Secondly, we have seen the mighty power of the gospel in verses 4 and 5. Paul gives thanks because these believers have been transformed by the gospel. They don't need to look anywhere else. They don't need to look to counterfeit because this gospel has been mighty not only to save but to transform them so that faith and love and hope are evident in their hearts and lives. And thirdly, this morning, what I want us to look at is the unstoppable progress of the gospel. The unstoppable progress of the gospel. If you notice, Paul mentions the gospel. Look at verse 5. At the end of this verse. It says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, which is the gospel. So he mentions the gospel as the, tr- the only source of our Christian hope. But now in verses 6 through 8, he's going to expand upon that gospel. And he's going to talk about its progress. He's going to talk about the fact that it's expanding, not only in the lives of the Colossian believers, but also all over the world. So this third glorious truth of the unstoppable progress of the gospel is is our focus this morning. Paul highlights this unstoppable progress. 
And in doing so, he does this. He highlights four distinctives that I want us to, to extract from this passage this morning. Four distinctives concerning this gospel that I want us to focus our attention upon. These are all subpoints under this third major point, all right? The first one is this. The gospel is a message. The gospel is a message. And as such, it is a message that must be shared, that must be proclaimed, and must be preached. Perhaps some of you have heard the saying in Christian circles. I heard this oftentimes in, at the, pre, in the previous ministry that I was a part of. Live the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Live the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And I get what people mean by that. I get it. Your actions in your life speaks louder than your words. I get it. I remember one person one time telling me, Kempis, the problem with conservative Christians is that they are all about preaching and uh, expounding sound doctrine, but they do not live out that doctrine. And I say, you know what? That's true in some cases. But the answer to believers who are committed to sound doctrine, not applying the word of God, is not to stop preaching the word of God. Or to stop emphasizing the need for sound biblical teaching. The answer is to continue to teach the unadulterated word of God and help people and encourage them to apply the word of God. It is not that we chuck out the preaching of the word of God ever. No matter what. Here at Calvary Bible Church, the word of God will always be central. Not only in this pulpit, but in every other pulpit. Always. But we also need to be applying the word of God. We need to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. So I get what people mean by live the gospel and if necessary, use words. In other words, your life must match that which you preach. Amen. Preach it, I would say to that. And I think God's word calls us to apply it, right? But what I want you to notice here is that there are some terms in this passage which highlight the fact that the gospel is a message to be spoken and understood. Look at verse 5 and some of these terms. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously, what? Heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. How did it come to them? By means of Epaphras delivering that gospel to them. Just as in all the world, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you, what? Heard of it. And understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So all of these terms previously heard, and the word of truth, which has to do with a message. Since the day you heard of it, in verse 6, and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. All of these have to do specifically with the fact that Epaphras had delivered a message to the Colossians that they had actually heard the gospel. It was a message that he had proclaimed. Epaphras had been the human mouthpiece who had proclaimed a message to these Colossian believers. The gospel, beloved, is a message to be understood and embraced. And it had changed these Colossian believers. And I'm sure Epaphras had lived a very godly life before them. But he had preached a message that they understood and embraced. And that message transformed them, right? As the Spirit of God worked in their hearts and lives. The gospel is a message that needs to be proclaimed in order for people to understand and believe in it. As the Spirit of God works in their hearts. Listen to Romans chapter 10 verse 14. 
Paul writes there, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear, will they hear without a preacher or a spokesman, a speaker of the Word of God? Verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And then in the same uh, Romans 10 chapter, verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the gospel is a message. There must be a preacher who proclaims content. Content that is then taken by the Spirit of God, and there is belief and faith wrought in the heart of a person who understands that message and embraces and and appropriates it to their hearts and lives. As the Spirit of God uses that message to convict the human heart of sin and bring about faith in their hearts. See, if a person is going to believe, then the Spirit of God must awaken the heart of a spiritually dead person. But it's going to come by means of the gospel being shared. This is why when you read the Gospels, think about the the ministry of our Lord Jesus. He's constantly preaching. He's constantly teaching. And the miracles that he's doing are to authenticate the fact, that message and, and who he is. But he's constantly preaching and teaching concerning the kingdom of God. He never stopped doing that. In the synagogues, privately, publicly, from place to place. Constantly preaching. Constantly teaching. In the book of Acts. Peter and the apostles are always preaching the gospel, are they not? Always exalting Christ and His Word. Always teaching people so that the multitudes are convicted of their sin. And they're led to to ask, what must we do to be saved? People heard the Word of God. They believed it as the Spirit of God did a work in their heart. And they, they embraced that powerful message. And then they became witnesses who also went out and proclaimed a gospel message. See, I hear a lot of Christians making the excuse, well, I am just trying to live my life before them. That's all I do. I just want, you know, in my workplace, I'm just trying to live the life. And you know what? If you have a relationship with those particular people, or maybe in your neighborhood, maybe they already know that you're a Christian. Maybe you already shared the gospel. And in those cases, that's very good. That's very good. But sometimes we can use the excuse that we're just going to live before people and we never tell them the content of the gospel message. We never talk about the hope of Christ. So yes, our lives must be consistent with the message that we preach, beloved. Absolutely. Amen. Preach it. But only living before someone does not save them in and of itself, right? Only living before them doesn't save them. You need to tell them why you live this way. What has happened to you? Who has made this change in your life? We need to be people who preach the gospel of grace. Who speak forth the mysteries of the gospel. We need to tell people that God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to die on the cross for their sins. We need to tell them that by faith in this atoning work of Christ, we can be reconciled to God, our Maker, who has made us to know Him and to love Him and to live for His glory. We must tell them that only faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, that's the only way of salvation. It's not by works. It's all of grace. It's free. It's unmerited. It's unearned. The gospel is the saving grace of God. We need to speak forth that message. We need to tell people that God has extended His gracious hand whereby He grants sinners, undeserving sinners, free and unmerited salvation in His Son. We need to be speaking the message of salvation, beloved. 
The gospel is a message to be shared and proclaimed and preached so that people can understand it. And we need to be bold with that message. We need to be bold with that message. I realize that this is something that's been said from this pulpit many times. But I fear that we're dropping the ball and reaching our community for Christ because we're not preaching the gospel, beloved. We're not dropping the bomb, if you will. We're not doing it with boldness and confidence. We are cowering away because of the changes in our country and our community. We need to be careful to continue with with boldness, but with compassion to share the saving message of Christ because it's the only hope for people on this earth. And I say with compassion and mercy and patience, knowing that were it not for the grace of God, you and I would be in the same place. Amen? We would be in the same place. So let's be bold, but with compassion, preach the gospel. Talk to people about the fact that their only hope is in Jesus Christ in a wicked and perverse generation. So this unstoppable gospel is a message to be proclaimed. That's the first distinctive. The second one is this. The gospel is the only truth. The gospel is the only truth. Notice that twice in this passage, Paul refers to the gospel as the truth. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, which is the gospel. Look at the end of verse 6. Since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in what? In truth. In truth. So he calls it the word of truth, the word which is truth. He calls it the grace of God in truth. This word is a great word, truth. It, has, it refers to real or authentic as opposed to that which is false. It refers to something which is reliable and trustworthy. In contrast to the false teaching, the empty deception, the false counterfeit, misleading teaching that these believers were succumbing to subtly in Colossae, the gospel, he says, is the truth. It is authentic. It is genuine. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. Amidst, beloved, of a culture which rejects any claim to absolute truth, I want you to know that the gospel is the absolute objective truth. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether the unbeliever wants to admit it or not, it is the truth. It is the truth. Jesus said in John 17, praying for his disciples and future disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. You know what this tells me? That if the gospel is the truth, that if it is reliable and it is trustworthy, it tells me that I better share the message with conviction. With conviction. What are convictions but those beliefs that you're willing to pay the price for? Convictions that drive you to make decisions to your own hurt, but you're committed to the truth of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. We need to be preaching the gospel with conviction, willing to stand firm to the point that you and I pay the price for the beliefs that we have. Why is it that liberals or people out there promoting certain ideas or certain things that they want to, um, uh, laws that they want to see pass, they're they're promoting these things with conviction, but Christians are cowering away when we have the truth. And it is not because it's inherent within us. It's because the Word of God says it concerning itself. Right? 
Why are we carrying away from that? The gospel is absolute truth. And you want to talk about making decisions that will cost you if you really believe in the fact that the gospel is the truth? I know a man, a professor at a Christian college here in the States, who part of his testimony is is talking about the fact that in a communist country growing up, at one point, his parents and himself and his other brother were taken out of their house. And the communist leaders basically said to the parents, if you don't deny Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are going to take your son and we're going to beat him right before you. That's what we're going to do. And would you believe that they did not deny Jesus? And those communist leaders went on to beat that son to a pulp to death right in front of this man, as well as his parents. What, what propels parents to do that? You know what? That they were convinced that they had the truth, right? They were convinced concerning the love of God displayed in Christ Jesus. They weren't going to deny the very one who had died for their sins. And they knew that their son was a believer. And beyond this life, even if physically he was put to death, he would live forever, Right? That was their hope. They had the conviction and they were willing to make decisions and choices based upon that conviction that they had the absolute objective truth of God. It was the conviction of the truth, that they had the truth, that drove the believers in the, in the book of Acts to continue to proclaim Christ, even when things got heated in Acts chapter 4. And the apostles were brought forth before the religious leaders, the same religious leaders for the most part that had taken Jesus to the cross, that were responsible for his murder. In Acts chapter 4, they look at them square in the face and say, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They were forbidden to continue to proclaim Jesus and his name. And they say, we cannot stop doing that. Why? We're compelled by the conviction that Jesus is the truth. He truly has been resurrected. He truly has been exalted. We cannot stop speaking the truth. Whether it's right in the sight of God, that we obey you rather than God, you be the judge, they said. And they continued to preach Christ. Why? Because, beloved, they knew that they had the truth concerning this person, this beautiful person, Jesus, the majestic one, the exalted one, who was returning one day. And their mission was to proclaim the exalted Jesus. And they weren't going to shy away from that. Conviction needs to drive us, beloved, that Jesus is the only truth, that He's real, that His death and resurrection are true. If you believe that, then your life will show it. Your life will show it. You need to be praying for divine appointments every single day that you may be able to proclaim the truth with compassion and mercy and love. Amen? We need to be praying that. The gospel is absolute truth. The gospel is not speculation. It is not theory. It is not subject to our validation. In an age of relativism where all roads supposedly lead to heaven, the Bible says that the gospel is the only absolute objective truth and Jesus is the only way. All roads don't lead to heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through faith in Jesus. Amen? He's the only one. He is the centerpiece, Christ, of the gospel. 
He's the only hope for humanity. Beloved, do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you do, then it's going to lead you to be bold and compassionate in sharing the gospel and dropping the bomb. Amen? It's going to lead you to that. So the unstoppable gospel is a message to be proclaimed. It is absolute truth. And thirdly, it is effective. The gospel is effective. In other words, it produces results. It produces results. Paul gives thanks here because the gospel has been effective in both the lives of the Colossians as well as all over the world. Notice verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. See, the gospel had come to the Colossians. God had used Epaphras to deliver this gospel message, and they came to really know it. I love that word at the end of verse 6, where it says, Since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. It's the basic word to know there, the word understood. To know with a little word, a preposition attached to it, intensifying the meaning. And it gives a sense of to know exactly, to know completely, to know thoroughly. The Colossians had come to understand the gospel more than just mentally, more than just intellectually. They had really come to appropriate the truth of God into their lives. It had produced results, transforming power in the lives of these Colossian believers. But also the gospel had produced results, he says in verse 6, all over the world. All over the world. Not just in the lives of these Colossians, but all over the world. And he highlights the dynamic nature of the gospel in the lives of these uh, of people all over the world with two present tense participles here. The first one, can, he says, continually bearing fruit in verse 6. Continually bearing fruit. This gospel that has been delivered and that is going forth all over the world is bearing spiritual fruit is what he's referring to. Good works, God-glorifying works in the lives of people. He's going to pray for that in verse 10. He's going to say, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in our respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul is saying, this gospel is effective. It's bearing fruit all over the world. There are people who are coming to know Christ and they're bearing fruit by means of good works for the glory of God. And the second participle that he mentions here is this word increasing in verse 6. And it's a continual tense here. Continually is increasing. Spreading abroad this outward expansion. the, The gospel is not only bearing spiritual fruit, beloved. But Paul is saying it is growing numerically all over the world. It is effective. There's spiritual fruitfulness. There's numerical growth and expansion. See, Paul is highlighting the dynamic nature of the gospel. That when the gospel goes forth and the word of God goes forth, it is never, ever, ever stagnant. Never stagnant. It's never paralyzed. It's always doing its work. It's always effective. It is always producing results. And so he highlights here the results in the lives of these Colossian believers as well as in the lives of these uh, people all over the world. And you know why it is effective? Why it produces results? 
Because the gospel is the power of God, right? It is the power of God. It's what God uses by means of His Spirit to raise spiritually dead sinners who don't seek Him, who don't seek to be reconciled to Him. God fuels that message that you share and that you preach to people, beloved. He uses that. It's, a, it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, Paul says in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the, of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross, which is synonymous, the word of the cross to the gospel, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. The power of God. And since it is God's power, there is no way that the gospel can be confined or stopped or ever restricted, right? Ever. This is why Paul tells Timothy from prison, the latter days of his life, the Apostle Paul writes 2 Timothy, and he says to his young disciple in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. Paul says, I may be in jail. I may be hindered in many ways. I can't go out anymore to do to visit the churches and to visit the missions that I've established. I can't do that to the same level and to the same extent anymore. But the Word of God is not imprisoned. It continues to be effective. It continues to grow. It continues to expand all over the world. It continues to bear fruit. Beloved, listen. What great promise that you and I as believers... That when we share the word of God and we share the gospel, it will never, ever, ever prove ineffective. It will always accomplish its work. Don't get discouraged when you share with family members who are unbelieving. Don't get discouraged when you share with unbelievers in your community or in your work environment. Continue to pray for them. Continue to share with them. Because the word of God is having an impact in their hearts, right? You know what? Either to reject the truth... And in that, that's fruit as well. Or to embrace the gospel. Or maybe you're planting a seed and it will grow and sprout later on. It will always accomplish its work. Always. Isaiah 55 verse 10 says this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Beautiful. The word of God convicts. The word of God cuts. It accomplishes that work. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, which contains the gospel, beloved, searches the soul. It searches the soul. It cuts through in ways that we, humanly speaking, can't do in the heart of somebody else. You need to share the word of God. It's going to bear fruit. Amen? 
Jeremiah 23, 29 says this, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. What does fire do? It burns everything in its way, right? It burns. He says, And my word is like a hammer which shatters a rock. The word of God preached is able to work in the most hardened of hearts, beloved. You've seen examples, right? Maybe you're, you're, you're one of those people. Who would have ever thought that you would be sitting in here worshiping Christ? Who would have ever thought that I would be preaching up here? Unworthy, selfish sinner. And God broke me. That's what the Word of God does when preached and shared. I'm still convinced. All the Awana verses that I grew that I grew up as a little kid memorizing never left me. And God used those scriptures to hammer me when I was a teenager. And I've never forgotten those scriptures. I'm so thankful for Awana, by the way. Putting the Word of God into the hearts of little ones and into youth, right? The Word of God accomplishes its work. Listen, people come and go. Kingdoms come and go. Philosophies come and go. Movements come and go. So-called gods with a little g come and go. Those things come and go. Religious saviors, so-called saviors come and go. But the gospel continues to grow and increase. It is unstoppable. Unstoppable, beloved. Continue to proclaim the gospel. It is effective. And you know what? This growth is not always easily quantifiable or definable. We don't always know how God is going to use circumstances even in our lives to spread forth the gospel message. I asked our dear uh, Lorena Townsend permission to share this. She posted a few weeks ago a post on Facebook talking about how the Lord has been impacting a particular longtime friend, a childhood friend, due to the death of little Joanna. She went home to be with the Lord just a few weeks ago. And she writes this, quote, I heard today from a childhood friend who walked away from the Lord years ago. She lives a very free-spirited lifestyle. But in God's kindness, he has jarred her world with the death of Joanna and the witness on Facebook of the outpouring of love to our family and the memorial service. She messaged me today to let me know that she wants what we have, that she is now seeking Christ and wanting to be a part of a church like ours. She doesn't live anywhere near here. But I, want you to, I wanted you to be encouraged that God is using all of us as salt and light through this very hard thing. I don't know who first said this, but I find great solace in that, quote, God never does just one thing, end quote. How many souls will be added to the saints because of Joanna's death? We may never know. But it's pretty awesome to be watching him work in so many ways, in so many lives. I love him more every day, end quote. God uses even the most difficult circumstances, beloved, to advance his gospel. Even the most difficult things. We can't get our arms around the infinite wisdom in God doing that. Where He uses our circumstances and He chooses to use us to bear much fruit for His church, to build His church, even through the hard things. You know, in Tim and Lorena's case, I have been astounded by their response to the death of their daughter. Astounded. And as people, even unbelievers, have watched them respond this way to the, to the taking home of their daughter. What a mighty testimony. What a mighty testimony. We can never quantify that. We can never define that. But God can use even those difficult circumstances to save others. 
See, our job is not to save people, right? It's not. Our job is to be faithful to responding to our trials rightly and bring Christ to bear upon every single one of those trials. Our job is to be sharing and proclaiming the message of Christ. Our job is to sow the word of God, beloved, and let, leave the results to God. Just be faithful to sharing the message of Christ. I love what C.H. Purgeon said concerning this reality of, let, of just being faithful to the word of God, to proclaiming it. He wrote, quote, You don't need to defend a lion when he is being attacked. All you need to do is open the gate and let the lion out, end quote. Let the word of God out. Let the lion of the word of God out, beloved. Leave the results to God, right? Let God be the one who produces the results. And he is going to do it because his gospel is the power, his power unto salvation. It's effective. So this unstoppable gospel is a message to be proclaimed. It is truth, absolute truth. It is effective. And finally, this gospel requires faithful messengers. The gospel requires faithful messengers. Notice this in verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, you learned the gospel from him, the word of truth. Our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Listen, the gospel uses human instruments. Normal, regular people, Joes and Jans like you and I. He uses normal people to spread his word. And in the case of the Colossians, Epaphras probably converted under Paul's ministry during his third missionary journey. He's preaching in Ephesus. Epaphras is probably converted during that time. God uses Epaphras. He goes to Colossae, preaches the gospel. The church begins in Colossae and then Hierapolis and Laodicea. And there's impact all over the place. Epaphras was one of those messengers. But Paul tells us he wasn't just a messenger. He was a partner and he was a faithful one. A faithful partner in the gospel. He uses these wonderful titles for him. In verse 7 he calls him our beloved fellow bondservant. Literally our fellow slave or our co-slave. With this term of endearment, beloved. Tender, affectionate term. Epaphras is a partner. He's a, he's a co-slave in the progress of the gospel. They were all slaves of Christ. And here is this man who was a partner in that grand enterprise of the gospel. He also calls him a faithful servant of Christ. A faithful servant of Christ. For you deacons, here's the, this word here for servant is the word diakonos. The basic meaning of a, of a servant, one who renders service of a lowly kind. That was Epaphras. Epaphras was a faithful servant. He was reliable. He was committed. He was devoted to the gospel. Here Paul is endorsing and affirming Epaphras, who was a committed messenger of the gospel. He's delivered a trustworthy, reliable message. He's a faithful man. He's a partner. And notice what he says as well in verse 7. Who is a faithful servant of Christ. Notice that. He's a faithful servant of Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 14 or verse 24 says this. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. 
Who did Epaphras serve? Christ. Who do you serve as a partner in the gospel? You, beloved, serve Christ. The next time that you get tired and you're weary of your service and you feel like people don't appreciate you, we have been talking on Sunday nights about the importance of showing gratitude and affirmation to one another and finding positive evidences of grace in one another and encouraging one another. And that's very good so that we may be encouraging and motivating one another to remain steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. We need to encourage one another. But on the other hand, recognize, beloved, that even if you lose heart and people aren't expressing appreciation for you and all of that, at the end of the day, you serve Christ. You serve Christ. And maybe the next time that we get tired of of serving, we ought to complain in terms like these, Lord, I'm tired of serving you. Puts it in perspective, doesn't it? We typically say, you know what? I'm tired of serving in this ministry. These guys don't appreciate me. Those ladies don't appreciate me. You know what? It's better for you to say, you know what, Lord? I'm tired of you and I'm tired of, uh, of serving you. Because that's really at the end of the day what the issue is, isn't it? And again, we need to encourage one another in those tasks. We absolutely need to be motivating one another be expressing gratitude for one another and what God is doing in each other's lives. But beloved, at the end of the day, Epaphras and you, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, you serve Christ. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for you if you are a believer. He came to save you and to serve you. And that's what we do as well. And notice, Epaphras is not a maverick. He's not his own man. Paul says he is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. He was a man who had delivered a message passed on to him. And he delivered that message faithfully, did Epaphras. Paul and others had passed on this message to Epaphras. There was nothing original in Epaphras. There's nothing original in us. We are in a long line and there's a baton being passed to us. We're partners in this grand enterprise, you see. Epaphras was not this, this lone ranger guy. His, he came and he received this message from Paul and his, and his mission was to deliver that message unadulterated, the pure gospel. And that's what this man had done. That's why Paul commends him here. He was a, a faithful messenger. And because he was a faithful messenger, it had borne fruit, specifically love in these believers, according to verse 8. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras has told us of your love, that you are a love-expressing people. And this is generated by the Spirit of God in these believers. So Epaphras was a faithful messenger. But listen, he was just a man, wasn't he? Just a man. Just a man. The gospel, beloved, uses human instruments such as you and I. There are no super messengers, all right? There are no super messengers. My mission here on earth is the same mission that every other believer has in here, and that is to proclaim Christ. Amen? Every single one of us can be faithful messengers and be delivering that unadulterated message. There are no super messengers. We all may have different callings in terms of how the outworking of our particular mission within this grand enterprise of the gospel, but we're all called to be, to be messengers. And God uses normal Joes, normal Joes, transforming their lives. Think of Adoniram Judson. We tend to, to glorify these individuals 
The more distance we are from their deaths, deaths, the more that we glorify them. But Edgar Adoniram Jezim was just another man whose life was transformed. He was the first missionary from North America to be sent to spread the gospel in what was then Burma and its present day now Myanmar. Forty years he was in that country proclaiming the gospel. And a few years ago, I got an opportunity to go to one of those church buildings in Myanmar that was built in his honor. And it was a a room packed with liberal people who didn't even believe that the Bible was the word of God. But in that crowd was a remnant of people who held to the sufficiency and the authority of the word of God. And I met some of them. You know what? It's because God used this simple man transformed by Christ, Adoniram Judson, to spread the gospel that now the baton had been passed on and there was a remnant still in Myanmar. And there's a movement of people proclaiming the gospel within the Baptist denomination in Myanmar. All because God used a normal Joe like Adoniram Judson. Just another agent. William Carey. William Carey. Late 18th century, a British missionary, he's commonly referred to as the father of modern missions, took the gospel to India. I know a, a, a great, wonderful, godly man who is a, who's an a Indian national who's a missionary. He does work all over India. And there are, are, are believers there, remnant, because of the fact that William Carey, a normal Joe, went to India and God used him to spread the gospel. Beloved, listen. There are people like that all over the world and people that we might never know about. I know one pastor in the Dominican Republic who nobody would has, in here would have ever heard of him. You probably don't know him at all. Probably will never have a book written after him. But this man has planted close to 30 churches in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And now they're looking into Cuba, planning another church. And he makes his way around to visit these churches. He is solid. Solid man of God. Nobody will ever hear of him. Great preacher. Just another human being. But he's a messenger. Because God uses simple, transformed people just like you and I. He's a spirit-empowered messenger. Amazing. People who are willing to serve Christ. And you know, as I look at our youth, even in this service, I pray so, so badly that many of you young people, whether it's in your fa- raising a godly family and sharing the gospel with your kids, or some of you being sent from Calvary Bible Church as missionaries someday, I pray that Calvary Bible Church would send many young people into the future, into the mission field. In this country, in the mission field of this country, or all over the world. I pray for some of you young ladies. That you would raise godly families. That you would be a faithful representative of Christ. That maybe some of you will be pastors' wives. All right? That some of you young men will be pastors. Can we pray that way? In that kind of way? That Calvary will be that kind of a bulwark, beloved. It's already happening. It's already happening. When Christ grabs a hold of your heart, there is nothing that he can use you to accomplish. Not because there's some inherent worth or value in you, beloved young people, but because the gospel is the power of God. And God can use you to take the gospel into other countries. Have a vision for what Christ can do for your life. Amen? I pray that many of you would come out of this church like that. Now I want you to think about how God works. 
Paul had been converted some 30 years before this book is written. There were individuals who invested into Paul to become the man of God that he became, to grow him and mature him like Ananias initially, right? Upon his conversion. And then Barnabas who came alongside of him to support him and affirm him and invest into him. Peter and others. People invested into the Apostle Paul. And he goes on to preach Christ and make other disciples of his own. And Paul now invests into others, Epaphras being one of them, and Tychicus, and Onesimus, and Justice, and Luke, and Titus, and Timothy. Paul reproduced himself at a high level. He was a disciple-making disciple. He was a messenger who wasn't content with having his, his life transformed. He wanted, to, he wanted to see other people's lives transformed. And he wanted to see others go way above and beyond what, what he did and what he accomplished. Think about that. Paul and Epaphras were disciple-making disciples. They were in the business of investing themselves into others. They were not about building their own little kingdom. They were about building the church of Jesus Christ. That's what they were committed to. They were partners for the progress of the gospel. And I want to ask you this morning, are you living as a messenger and as an instrument of the gospel? Is that you? Is that what characterizes you? If you are a believer, if you are a believer, your mission is the progress of the gospel in whatever facet of life God has you. Your mission is to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And you can do that in, the, in a secular workforce. You can do that as a, as a Christian businessman. You can do that in whatever case. You can do that as a pastor. You can do that as a layperson. But your mission is the progress of the gospel. That's what we're called to do, beloved. That's our mission. So I want to ask you, when was the last time that you shared your faith? When was the last time that you shared your faith with somebody? When was the last time that you spent time investing into somebody else in this flock? That you actually went to another person who maybe knows less than you do a baby believer in the periphery here at the church, and you asked them to begin to meet with them on a consistent basis so that you could impart what you know. When was the last time that you did that? Are you a disciple-making disciple? Are you a faithful messenger? See, many of us are very spoiled. Many of us are spoiled. Our attitude, our general attitude is, hey, Kempis, tell me something that I don't know already. This isn't very profound. This isn't very profound stuff. And we love knowledge, and we love to study theology. But I'm going to tell you something right now. Christian maturity is not measured by how much you know, right? It isn't. Christian maturity is measured... By how much you take what you know in making God-glorifying decisions and having God-glorifying priorities in your life, first and foremost, in pursuing holiness. And secondly, Christian maturity shows itself in your ability to take what you know and to invest it into somebody else to raise them up as a disciple who will then in turn go and invest themselves into another person. So how much are you investing yourself into other people? You know, we have many immature Christians in our churches who have been sitting under very good teaching for a long, long time. And their immaturity is shown in the fact that they consistently, as a pattern, never invest themselves into others. 
They're like sponges full of water. All goes in, little to nothing comes out of that sponge. Constantly getting involved in the latest controversy in the church. Rather than investing themselves into somebody else. Another baby believer. Another fellow brother or sister in Christ. And sometimes I fear, frankly, that what we may be dealing with is not necessarily professing, I mean, uh, genuine believers, but an epidemic of unconverted people who are deceived into thinking that they can be Christian with no commitment to the church or to people whatsoever. We are messengers of the gospel, beloved. We're called to share Christ, to build up disciples. We're servants of Christ. Are you serving Christ? Are you investing yourself into God's people? Are you investing yourself into the church of God? Is that what characterizes your life? And it's not because God needs you. He doesn't need me. He can bring in a donkey to preach up here if he really wanted to do that. He doesn't need Campus Hernandez. He doesn't need any of us. He can use anyone. We are under rowers. That's all we are. And when one is tired, that, that under rower gets thrown over. And the next guy jumps in to take his place. That's what we are. But how amazing and how privileged we are, beloved, to be invested into by our God and put into this grand enterprise of the gospel. How privileged people we are. So Paul thanks God for the unstoppable progress of the gospel. The gospel that is a message to be proclaimed. It is absolute truth. It is effective. And it requires faithful messengers. Beloved, we have so much to be thankful for in the glorious gospel. Do we not? I pray that we would rejoice in what God has done in our lives and that we would pass that on to others and that we wouldn't settle for counterfeits, things that really at the end of the day don't bring about growth in your life, that you would look to Christ and to his word. He's supreme. He is sufficient. And we need to be proclaiming him on this earth. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much. For your word. I thank you for the Christ revealed in your word. And I pray that we would be people who would be so enthralled and captivated by the glorious gospel of your Son that we would be propelled, Lord, to proclaim him on this earth with boldness and compassion and mercy, knowing that were it not for your grace, we would not be here either, Lord. Help us to be bold messengers. Help us to remember that you have simply called us to share the message and you, Lord, are the one who produces the results in the hearts and lives of people. But help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us to not just be pew sitters. Help us to be engaged, highly committed participants. Help us, Lord, move in us to be serving Christ by serving one another, Lord. Help us to be people, above all, who are exalting Christ which is what glorifies you. And we ask you all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.